Have you wondered what food policy even is? We talk to food policy expert, Balin Linekin, to find out. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Balin Linekin is a food lawyer, author, columnist, and adjunct law professor. He serves on the board of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund and also served as founding board member of the Academy of Food Law and Policy. His first book, Biting the Hands That Feed Us, How Fewer, Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable, was published in 2016. His work has appeared in numerous law reviews and law journals, as well as in the popular press. He's been on NBC, MSNBC, NPR, Fox Business Channel, and many, many other television and radio stations. He's also been quoted as an expert in much of the popular press. He has earned an LLM in Agricultural and Food Law from the University of Arkansas School of Law and a JD from Washington College of Law. He also uh, lives in Seattle and has actually uh, a new piece in The Counter about COVID-19 outbreaks on fishing vessels. He's constantly talking about issues in food law and policy, and that's why I wanted to talk to you today. Welcome, Balin. Thanks so much for having me on, Liz. It's great to reconnect. So tell me how you really developed this interest and how you made the journey from where you were and where you are now. I, I always start this uh, a response to this sort of question with an answer that goes along these lines, you know, that I never answer the same question the same way, uh, or that question the same way twice. Um, and so I always start with that. I suppose in some regard, I do answer the question the same way. Um, but then I diverge from there. So I guess I'll start with... Uh, I had gotten a master's degree in learning sciences at uh, Northwestern University. That's like a combination of education technology. And I started working for a startup. This was the early 2000s. And then the dot-com collapse happened right after I started. And then 9-11 happened. So there wasn't much uh, hiring in this field. And I, I didn't see uh, that it had, it had a future. I mean, obviously, people are you know, zooming into school from home. Um, but it didn't have an immediate future, a short-term future. So ultimately, I shifted gears and decided to go to law school. And in doing so, I, I'd had a food policy blog at the time called Christie on the Outside, which no longer exists, but which, I think my word, was pretty awesome. And I just kind of <laughs> looked at food policy issues in a fun way. I was trying not to be Marion Nestle. I certainly, you know, I, I don't agree with her on many issues. No, but I, I, yeah, I don't she's, think she's, you're Marion Nestle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I succeeded, right? right. And nothing against her. I've, I've met her before. She's very, very smart. I, I, you know, we disagree on a lot of uh, food policy issues. And so I was kind of a, I wouldn't say a counter to her, but 
Yeah, I was one of these sort of early food policy bloggers, let's say. And I was doing that in law school, and I ultimately had to give it up because it was either, you know, blog or read that uh, incessantly boring article on property uh-huh. uh, law. So I you know, chose the latter just so I could graduate. But during law school, it was particularly during my constitutional law class, I learned about some seminal cases that are very, very influential even today, even though they took place you know, 50, 75, even 150 years ago. And they are, including one which uh, you're no doubt, well, you're familiar with all these, but one which takes place uh, where you're at right now, the slaughterhouse cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was three or four different cases suggest looked at slaughterhouses and there was a monopoly in New Orleans and it was a state imposed monopoly. And the question was, you know, whether that was legal or not. And so I was, you know, intrigued. I thought, oh, here's a food policy case. I've never heard of this before. And then I, you know, we read Wickard v. Filburn, which was about a, a farmer, Roscoe Filburn, who uh, was growing wheat during uh, the New Deal era. And the government claimed that he had grown more than his allotment. And he said, I'm just growing this to feed my family and make some bread and use the rest for animal feed. And there's some evidence that he was probably selling it on the side, um, or at least that he you know, would have had to have eaten the equivalent of like 25 loaves of bread a day um, you know, for the amount. But uh, the question to me wasn't whether the, the government was, you know, policy was made sense or all that, but it was just like, how can the government tell this guy he can't grow his own wheat? You know, and it struck me as strange, too, that he wasn't trying to invoke any particular right. He wasn't saying, I have a constitutional right to grow as much or as little wheat as I want. And the government can't tell me how much I can or can't grow. Can't force me to grow it. Can't stop me from growing it. You know, this is a perfectly legal food. And so there was an absence of this kind of rights discussion there. And I looked at other food law cases, Caroline Products, uh, the famous footnote for I don't want to geek out too much, but it basically it was a milk substitute case, also I think from the 1940s, maybe late 30s. And the the premise was that you know could the government prohibit this perfectly healthy? Uh, it was what was called filled milk. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous footnote four in the case which says, in essence, uh, any sort of economic case, uh, you don't have a fundamental right to make uh, you know a particular food product. It's it's a more broad uh, ruling than that. Uh, But it basically sort of took economics and and business out of this sort of substantive due process uh, approach that the Supreme Court used and still uses. So it was basically saying, like, yeah, food, you don't have any rights. And so the more I read these cases, the more I was, I don't want to say outraged, but just mystified because no one was asserting their rights to do these things, you know, to make food, to sell food, to eat food, to buy food. And then I, you know, I also recognized that in my food policy blogging, I was reading about and writing about these exact same things you know, happening today. And it occurred to me that, you know, because the courts have permitted government, in my opinion, to overstep its boundaries so much, it's taken away what you know, has come to be known as food freedom from individuals. And food freedom isn't the right to make. You know, the, the choice the government says is the right choice. It's the right of an individual to choose for themselves or their family. And there are, you know, restrictions today, soda taxes and, you know, people being told that they can't grow, they can't have a garden in their front yard uh, because of the city ordinance or they're being told they can't share food with the homeless and less fortunate, which is probably the most outrageous rule, particularly these days. 
So we're living with the consequences of poor decisions that the Supreme Court and then other federal and state courts have made over the last 150 years or so. And so I've decided that I was going to make a go at trying to reverse not only those laws, but the thinking around those laws and the fact that they impact actual tangible rights rather than just, you know, it's not just the government saying you can't do that. It's the government saying you don't have a right to do that. And I'm saying, yes, you do. Yes, I do. Yes, we do. Well, everybody eats, so it affects absolutely everyone. So I think it's amazing um, that you actually uncovered that because I don't really, I agree with you. I don't think people thought about it that way before you began to assert that. Well, I I don't, I appreciate that. I don't necessarily um, need the credit, but um, I'm not going to turn it down. (laughs) (laughs) And so did you finish law school and go straight into um, graduate law school, or did you work and then go back to law school? I, I went straight into the Master of Laws program in Arkansas. You know, I, I had a pretty good grounding in food policy, you know, meaning not agricultural policy. You know, I understood how kind of the, the mechanisms that prohibited people from, you know, say, parking a food truck in a particular neighborhood or... Uh, you know, a soda tax and that causes and effects and all that kind of stuff. I, I understood those, but I, I wasn't really versed in kind of USDA history and regulations and some other kind of more purely ag stuff, mm-hmm. food waste, you know, things like that. So the LLM program to me was a great opportunity to you know, continue writing and all that. And, and, and then also uh, to just kind of you know, get a good grounding in, understanding of uh, ag law, both its history and presence uh, and, and the applications and problems. So, and, and, you know, kudos to Arkansas. I definitely feel like I got that grounding. And I did actually work uh, for a small law firm during, uh, I think, the second half of my uh, LLM program. And I worked for it was a food and beverage labeling, namely alcohol. And so I did that and I continued that after, after I finished the LLM program, but then decided, which you know, because you served on the board, to start a nonprofit called Keep Food Legal that would kind of channel high energies and and hopefully those of others um, into, you know, this kind of uh, promoting food freedom the same way that the ACLU promotes free speech without kind of judging the the quality of speech. You know, they are happy to represent people whose speech most most of us would say, yeah, that's, that's, that's great speech. Um, but you know, maybe the government's cracking down on it, whereas you know, the, the ACLU is also happy to, maybe not happy, but willing to um, represent far more you know, odious speech. And so food needed that kind of approach. And so I started Keep Food Legal and, and you and other fine people uh, serving the board. And uh, yeah, long story short, uh, I was uh, really bad at fundraising. And so that, as you know, lasted, I think, about five years. And then I wrote a book. And so, and you also kind of along the way wrote many other articles and were were also writing a column for Reason, right? Yeah, yeah, I've been doing that since 2012. I have a weekly column that goes up on Saturday mornings usually. Um, I've also written for... I blog for the magazine and, and written uh, for the print magazine as well. I, I sometimes just randomly look back through my archives and I'm writing 50 columns.
the columns and you know, there's a lot of words there. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, I've kind of built up this, uh, you know, there are some issues I've written about probably a dozen times over the years. And you know, it's great just to be kind of on the record. Uh, yeah, certainly you know, I've, I've been wrong, just like uh, people with opinions generally are on some occasions. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the, the writing I've done there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all there for, for people to read if they'd like. And so when did you actually start appearing on television as sort of a television pundit? Um, I guess that was around the time I was starting Keep Food Legal. I had been on, you know, I'd spoken at conferences and uh, been on the radio and whatnot. And I have a, as the saying goes, a space made for radio. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and I guess other people said that I have a voice for radio. Um and I guess that's a, a you know, bigger compliment. Um, but I guess uh, people were hungry for, and by people, I guess I mean the media, was hungry for a voice that wasn't, you know, I wasn't a farmer and I wasn't the head of a Fortune 500 food company, but I was speaking you know, words that would resonate with both of those people, I think. And so I was kind of a, a neutral third party um, that had opinions and that's, Usually it's, uh, you know, groups, uh, Center for Science and Public Interest, Food and Water Watch, um, Environmental Working Group. Yeah, those groups are, are you know, and, and uh, in some ways uh, you know, I disagree with them, but in other areas I, I disagree with them, and I think they all do yeah, good and important work. Um, and, you know, kind of having this civil society approach to food policy development. But I felt like the, the kind of key food legal voice was missing. The idea that uh, you know, regulations oftentimes are uh, put into existence either to stifle competition or because of, you know, the lawmakers and the regulators simply don't like the, you know, the food in question or the people who are making the food or whatnot. And, and that's not any basis for, for policymaking. And so you know, I, I, I think that people probably called on me just to provide that perspective and I'm, I'm grateful for having that opportunity. One of the things that I find annoying is when there are laws that are passed because the politicians think that this is a silver bullet that's going to solve a larger social mm-hmm. ill, and mm-hmm. they don't really sit down and actually think it out. It's just like, well, this will be an easy thing to do, and they don't even really review it or look at it in a critical way and it's just totally outrageous what they're trying to do i, I find that crazy i I, really, yeah. I went crazy with the uh, you know the sugary drinks rules and all of that sort of thing because it just seemed to me that it was so un unthought out there was never a real policy around it it was like oh we'll do this and this will solve our problems yeah, it's, I mean, the soda tax uh, is a great example, and certainly there are others. But usually, the the people who are promoting this, they only you know, only see uh, you know, the upside. They're so blinded, and there may not actually be upside, but they're generally blinded just by the idea that you know, with soda taxes, for example, so the, the notion that you know, soda is not uh, objectively healthy by any stretch, and I personally don't drink it. But, you know, what I do personally should have nothing to do with what the uh, the policy is 
coming out of it, uh, federal, state, or local governments. And so, yeah, you've got this policy that it's like, oh, yeah, well, sure, let's tax soda five cents. And it's just the ripple effects that go through, uh, you know, the very neighborhoods that this tax is allegedly supposed to help. You know, it's people who can't afford to go outside the city limits to pay the city tax. You know, they pack up their family, they go to Costco. I guess these days they put their mask on. And then they buy a bunch of soda and they go home and then the tax doesn't impact them at all because they're probably going to go to Costco anyways. But, you know, for low income communities that usually are, are, you know, have sort of less means to travel, no Costco membership, you know, they, they're the ones who end up saddled with the tax. And it's why people like Bernie Sanders think, you know, say that these taxes are regressive and we shouldn't have them. Mm. And I, I'm pretty sure that the soda makers Bernie Sanders probably don't agree on much, but I think it highlights a, a real issue. And then, of course, none of these things, none of these policies ever have any sort of measurement uh, criteria or capability built in. And so then you get these uh, academics who you know, create studies that, yeah, you know, I'm sure they're sincerely opposed to soda consumption and all that, but they look at consumption versus, uh, you know, pre-tax, post-tax, and they say, yeah, well, our research shows that soda consumption is down by 4% and bottled water sales are up by 1%. So our policy is working. It's like, well, your policy was intended to combat obesity and has it. And you won't know because you don't actually care to study that. So it, it's a little, as you said, outrageous, that, uh, or more, more than a little outrageous, uh, that yeah, we just kind of throw these policy prescriptions at the wall and, and see what sticks. But then... Yeah, you know, never really point out when they don't stick and they flat on the floor. Oh yeah, I I think it's it's really it's really a shame. So tell me a little bit about your work with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Sure. So FTCLDF, uh, which is FarmToConsumer.org, it's a uh, nonprofit five hundred one c four organization, which means that yeah, most of the things we do. Uh, both legal and policy work, and I, I'm an unpaid board member. You know, what we do is we support the small farmers and ranchers uh, around the country, artisanal food makers and consumers who want to consume usually farm-fresh foods such as pasteurized or raw milk, locally uh, raised and uh, processed uh, meat. You know, obviously, you don't raise meat, but you raise the animal that the meat comes from. So, you know, small farmers, uh, we're advocating on behalf of them and it's a membership organization and we help them do a whole host of things from creating a, a her share agreement to, uh, in many cases, if a, a farmer rancher member gets in trouble with regulators, they're doing something that they've done for years and it's according to the law. And suddenly, uh, you know, a new inspector comes in say, and says, Oh, you can't do that. And we'll jump to their defense and, and try to, you know, if we have to, we, we do sometimes too, but, uh, you know, we'll intervene on behalf of them and, and talk to the regulators and try to reach a uh, inclusion that allows the member to continue doing what they're doing. And usually, you know, as is the case, I think in most uh, disputes, if you, uh, you know, can explain to the government uh, and, and kind of you know, forcefully explain to them that uh, this is legal and if you pursue this, we'll, we'll fight you. Um, you know, in some some cases, perhaps not all of the government uh, has backed down. So, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of this group. 
just um, in in the Northwest? Uh, no, it's actually it's uh, incorporated in Ohio. It's a national group. It's okay. incorporated in Ohio. Headquarters in Virginia. Our executive director is based in Wisconsin, and we have board members all around the country. We have uh, based so Wisconsin, Minnesota, Oregon, uh, me in Seattle. We have a board member um, in Texas, and one in Kansas. So yeah, we've got and sorry Wyoming too. So we've got a pretty good national reach uh, in terms of our board and. Yeah, all of our work is, uh, is you know, we certainly do local stuff, but we're advocating, uh, for example, uh, for the uh, sale uh, of unpasteurized butter across state lines mm-hmm. before the USDA, and that's something that would impact farmers mm-hmm. and consumers in, in every state. Right, yeah. And so also now, tell me about the Academy of Food Law and Policy. So I was one of the founding board members for that. It's an academic uh, group, and the premise was you know, I was writing an article uh, with a friend and colleague um, about the history of the field of food law and policy as a scholarly field, which has been around now for about 15 years. And so we were on it, you know, what we kind of posited as its 10-year anniversary doing this research. And we were comparing it to other fields that were similar, so food and drug law, FDA law, and then agricultural law or USDA law, as it's not really known, but that's you know, the premise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so food law and policy kind of arose out of that. And you know, food trucks are a great example. Food trucks aren't regulated by the USDA. They're not regulated by the FDA. They're regulated by states and you know, sometimes county and local governments. And so that. Food trucks don't really have a home in FDA law or in agricultural law, but food law and policy is a much broader field, um, and it's able to look at foods that are regulated by the FDA and the USDA, but also all the other stuff, you know, food waste, and it really encompasses all these uh, issues that are, are important right now and uh, you know, have been. So and, so and you're we, covering constitutional as well as administrative issues and, and other kinds of legislation. So it's not all administrative, because exactly. I think FDA law is primarily administrative law. Yes, yes, that's true. And it's state and local as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, um, and so the yeah, we looked at, we developed 10 criteria for basically looking at something and saying, is this a field? Um, and according to the 10 criteria, food law policy at the time was doing very well. Um, on a 10-year anniversary toward, you know, either either it was a field or it, it, had, it was in the process of cementing itself. And there were a couple areas where it was lacking, and one was that there was no kind of membership organization like the um, American Ag Law Association or the Food and Drug Law Institute, some kind of guiding body that would speak for the, the state, you know, the current state of the field and, and where it's going. And so that was where the Academy of Food Law and Policy arose out of. It was me, it was Emily Broadleaf, who was my co-author um, on that article, uh, Susan Schneider from Arkansas, and Peter Barton-Hutt. And I'm, I guess I've named enough people now that I probably have to name everyone. No, <laughs> yeah, everyone. Um, but uh, let's see, um, there's well, uh, Neil can, Hamilton from... People say, can go to the website and look at the, um, yeah. the board, right? <laughs> okay, there we go, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, there are a couple others, but yes. Uh, anyways, and that that group is uh, going strong. I'm not really affiliated with them anymore. Um, uh, you know, I was on the board I think for three years, but I 
if I know the current board and, and think they're doing an excellent job. So um, that's, that's heartening that uh, the field is, you know, has cemented itself. Um, although, of course, now everything, and even my own writing, is so uh, just kind of taken over by the, the COVID crisis um, that it's, uh, you know, every communication about food law these days, I think, is, is related to some facet of the COVID crisis. And it's, uh, it's a prisoner for sure. It is. I, I look forward to a day. I mean, I obviously hope that it uh, it ends right now, and, and you know, just horrific that 150,000 people have died in this country. Um, but I, I, you know, I look forward to the, a day when when we can talk about other things, um, and and that would mean obviously that the pandemic has passed, and uh, you know, uh, people will have who are you know, very resilient. Um, have begun to kind of recover, I guess. And I, I can't wait for that to happen. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the fact that you have written a book, Biting the Hands That Feed Us, and also you've written a novel. So let me know about what you think of the difference in those kinds of writings. The novel is uh, it's called Nor'easter, as in the, the type of, storm that hits the uh, um, New England uh, pretty frequently, both uh, as a winter storm and otherwise. And it you know, may or may not stand for something else, too. But I started writing this in the, at least taking notes in the 1990s. Um, and so, yeah, I'd write a chapter, put it down for six years, write a chapter, <laughs> put it down for 10 years. And that's, that's not the way you write any book. Um, it's not the, right way, the way you write a novel. It's not the right way to... Uh, write a work of nonfiction either and I certainly you know uh, Biting the Hands of Feed Us which was peer reviewed um, and you know it, it was uh, I don't know whether everyone else would say it was exhaustive research but it was certainly exhaustive uh, and exhausting for me um, but I also wrote a great chunk of that book in like July 2015 I wrote probably two thirds of the, the first draft of the book in a month and yeah, that's just note taking and reading sources and really just having, you know, kind of a sense of, of where making sure you include all the relevant information. And then it's almost, you know, it's a, it's a legal process. It's the whole, you, know, you talk about the issue, you cite the rules, you analyze, and then you reach a conclusion with the IRAC, which is one of the preferred study and uh, exam approach methods in law school. So, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a grander version of that where it's fiction um it's more kind of feelings and emotions but it also for me it was really important because the novel is set in april 2001 so about you know six five six months before 9 11 and it was important to me that i try to get the facts right I, I was writing about the part of the world i grew up in uh, the north shore of Beverly, massachusetts about 20 miles north of boston and I really wanted to put the reader into the most accurate representation I could construct of that time and that place and that place specifically at that time. When, I, the, when the characters in the novel are at a Red Sox game you know, and I'm talking about what's happening, you know, here's a pitch and then you know, the characters discuss something, you know, that's actual play-by-play from the game that I've you know, analyzed. And so, uh, and when, you know, one of the... Um, 
you know, whether there's a home run hit on a particular pitch in a particular inning, that happens. And so I tried really to use um, kind of the facts that existed at the time to construct something um, that really you know, was about a particular time and place and setting. And research turned out to be, not surprisingly, the way to do that. So it was a different kind of research, but ultimately um, it was, you know, it was fun. It was challenging. Um, and I got to you know, include things like pets.com and their stock puppet um, <laughs> in the, the novel, which you know, was very much of that uh, time and era. And uh, so it was, it was fun. It was uh, fun in a way that writing the nonfiction book was more work than this was uh, just kind of riffing on my own you know, 20s. And so it was, it was kind of a nostalgic and, and enjoyable from that perspective. So let's uh, let's have one more topic to talk about before we have to leave everyone. And I wanted to ask you what you think that the long-term effect of COVID-19 will be on the restaurant industry in the United States. Yeah, well, that's actually, I, I suspect that uh, you... Um, are, are the expert here. Uh, my sense, and I'm thinking about it for a reason column down the road, kind of asking that it, roughly the question that was asked. Um, and it's, it, you know, when I think about it, it's just kind of terrifying. I mean, I've certainly seen here in Seattle restaurants closing, um, you know, and, you know, even big restaurant groups, uh, you know, the sort of Tom Douglas or you know, he's a Pacific Northwest name, but yeah, someone like Tom Kalikia, say, you know, they have a dozen restaurants. You know, how many of those are going to survive? And the ripple effects this is going to have on things that don't necessarily pertain to food, but, you know, the real estate industry and the careers of, of not just the restaurant owners, but, you know, Seattle Fair Start is one of the biggest nonprofits uh, in terms of uh, job training, at least. And they, you know, they train people who've been incarcerated, who've had uh, drug issues and other things for careers in the restaurant industry because that's the assumption, which has always been the case, and it's always held, is that you know, there always will be restaurant jobs. And so let's train people to, to go into those jobs. And it's, it's a wonderful organization. I volunteered for them uh, first started out here in Seattle. But I don't know, you know, what they're, how are they, are they going to train people for jobs that don't exist? And it's, it's really, it's, you know, dark days, uh, speaking to people I know in the restaurant industry, whether they're owners or, or chefs um, or people who are going to culinary school. Um, it's, it's, it's bleak, I think. Um, it's bleak in a lot of areas for the restaurant because of the unique challenges they pose just in terms of, you know, you can't wear a mask and eat at the same time. Right. Um, it's, and it's bars, really, it's, bars are also and bars. dealing with that, you know. In fact, yeah. bars are so, I don't know, but I, easier to close because you can just say, well, that's a frivolous thing, you know. Yeah, but I don't know. What do you think? I mean, what, uh, what's your take? And, and I'd love to hear particularly what you, you know, if you're more optimistic than I am because that would make me very happy. Well, I have short-term ideas about it and then long-term ideas. So one of the things that I think we were beginning to see a little bit in the restaurant industry before COVID 
was that these places, whether it was Uber Eats or any of the various kinds of waiter and, and other pickup places, pickup and delivery places, were beginning to get traction. And I think the fact that there was some infrastructure in place for that it means that now people can use those services and the infrastructure already existed. And it also meant that the restaurants had already thought about people not eating in the restaurant, but eating their food. So I think that the idea of curbside pickup and that sort of thing that has developed in some restaurants is going to keep a certain number of restaurants alive, especially those that can turn on a dime. And that doesn't help the servers so much, but it could help the actual people in the kitchen. So I think, though, that those those restaurants that simply don't want that kind of operation may, may close. I also think that we were eating out more than ever as a society. And not just people eating out because they were out of town and so they had to eat somewhere. I think that people ate out as entertainment more than they ever had before. And so what we've seen is every time there's been an economic downturn, restaurants are the things that people eliminate and people eat more at home. I also think that now that people are having to eat at home, especially during the very early stages when everything was locked down and restaurants were closed and and considered non-essential, except for pickup, I think that we've been eating at home long enough for, for some people to see it as a new normal, eating together and at home and preparing meals and whatever. I do believe that once... And and I think that with changing work patterns and more uh, people being able to work from home um, and and large companies actually saying this is going to change our policy, we may leave this in place even after the pandemic and and whatever, that people can work from home. I think we may see that actually make it possible for people to eat more at home and, and that sort of thing. But I I think that after the short-term effect is over and those restaurants that just couldn't make it until whenever this is over and they have to close because they just couldn't make it during this period, we're going to see restaurants open again. People are going to be excited that they get away, that they're not having to prepare every meal. I think we're going to see a lot more restaurants fine restaurants, white tablecloth restaurants, whatever you want to call them, making it possible for you to get their meals without having to sit down and eat there. So I think that that is going to be something that people find um, that they might sometimes prefer to do, and it's going to be available, which it wasn't before, not really. So I think... Short term, and by how long short is, I have no idea because we don't know how long this whole thing is going to last. But by short term, I mean until the end of this pandemic. I think we're going 
to see these adaptations that people have and the difficulty of restaurants who can't do curbside service, who don't choose to do curbside service or whatever, those those are going those restaurants are going to close. And if they can't hold out, they're going to be closed permanently. But I believe at the end of this pandemic, when things return to whatever normal is, I think people will begin to go back to restaurants. And just as they have clamored at bars that have opened in various places and then had to be shut down again or whatever, I think that's going to happen in restaurants where people are just so happy to get out and they're going to once again see having someone else prepare their food as entertainment. I've even seen restaurants in New Orleans, and I don't know whether this is a real trend everywhere, but famous restaurants making their food available through local grocery stores so that you can get the famous soup from here or there uh, sold in a grocery store. And you buy, you know, in, in, a, in a pint or a gallon or something like that, or maybe a half-gallon container, and then you can bring that home when you're at the grocery store buying food to take home. Well, this prepared food, not prepared by the grocery, but prepared by a restaurant that you've heard of, is available. And I think we're going to see more of that sort of thing, that integration and relationship between groceries and restaurants to buy already prepared food that restaurants have a reputation for. I think we're going to see a little bit more of that. But in terms of whether restaurants are going to reopen, I'm a lot more optimistic than you are that they will. But I don't know that the survival of the existing restaurants is going, the survival rate is going to be very good. Yeah, well, that's, uh, and thank you. I mean, that's, uh, for example, the the idea of the grocery, uh, you know, pick up. I've certainly, you know, I've seen it. Uh, you know, we've all seen it. Uh, there's like uh, Chili's has frozen meals in the in your freezer aisle at the grocery store or something like that. Um, or, you know, you get White Castle burgers. Yeah, right, that's aisle. that's not what I'm talking uh-huh. about. But I'm talking, it's a no, similar, no, no, it's a parallel thing, yes. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I, I knew you weren't talking about that. But yeah, I mean, if you can go to, you know, I mean, I can here in Seattle, if I could go to like Canlis or go to, you know, the grocery store and get like a you know fine dining meal, um, some you know, some soup or something like that for dinner. That is a great way uh, that, the, you know, the restaurants and groceries, which I think groceries are, are doing pretty well these days, but that they can have this kind of symbiotic relationship and that that, that might yeah, be the thing that, that can help uh, the, the better restaurants thrive, perhaps, or survive at least. Right. I think that those are things are evolving now and emerging because I think in the beginning people were reluctant to make too much investment of themselves and in money to making things like that possible because they didn't want to develop that and then find out, okay, well, all this is over, we'll just open again. But now that it appears that it's going to go on for a while, I think that all of that creativity is going to come out. And the idea that, that Chili's sells its, its chili in the frozen food aisle, it, I mean, there's already, uh, there's already a model for that, even though the scale is different. 
And so that's why I'm saying also things like waiter and uh, Uber Eats, those things already existed. So those, those infrastructures were in place. So I, I'm very hopeful that I, like I know that Commander's Palace, for example, is, is putting together meals that are uncooked in the way that uh, Marley Spoon does and uh, Blue Apron, where you can buy a Commander's Palace meal anywhere. They will ship it to you, and then you cook it according to their instructions, but you have all the prepped food that comes to you in a box. So Yeah, the, the, ki- the kidification of food. Yes, exactly, the kidification of food. But it also means that, you know, as far as Louisiana is concerned, you're getting Louisiana seafood, you're getting, mm-hmm. you're getting things that are helping not only the restaurant, but local fishermen and, and others, because these foods might not be available to you in, in any other way. That's, uh, that's really cool. There are, there are a couple of restaurants in my neighborhood here in Seattle that have done something similar. They have, you can either, you know, take away... Um, they cook it and, you know, maybe it's 10 bucks more or you cook it 10 bucks less. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, no, there's definitely, I, I, I'm, I like your optimism and I appreciate it. And, uh, it's, you know, it's sometimes tough to be optimistic these days. So I'll take it. Thank you. Well, and, and what I'm, I'm also not optimistic about a lot of the, the short term effects. That's why I divided it into short term and long term because, I think if you're only talking about short term, I think it could be really devastating for very, very many people. Yeah, I I, I share your short term pessimism, but uh, I'm going to come around to your long term. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Balin, it's been delightful to have you. Thanks for giving us your time today. Thanks so much. Uh, it was a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to uh, hearing the recording. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for joining me today, listening to Tip of the Tongue. We are part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Come and visit us at the Camellia Beans Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.